Support for NPR and the following message come from Ally. While you're working hard, is your money being lazy? Make your money work harder than ever with Ally's new smart savings tools. For all things money, you deserve an Ally. Visit ally.com. Ally Bank member FDIC. Thanks for listening to Pop Culture Happy Hour. Have you heard Up First, the morning news podcast from NPR? Give us 10 minutes or so, and you get a sense of the day's top stories and big ideas. It's the news you need to get through this day. Wake up with Up First tomorrow morning by 6 o'clock Eastern Time on the NPR One app and wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Pop Culture Happy Hour, NPR's roundtable podcast about what we are watching, reading, and listening to. I'm Linda Holmes. I'm the editor of NPR's pop culture and entertainment blog, Monkey See. This week, we'll look at the second season of Aziz Ansari's Netflix series, Master of None, and we'll see what there is to see in the very silly Goldie Hawn, Amy Schumer comedy, Snatched. And as always, we'll close the show with what's making us happy this week. But before we get started here in Historic Studio 44, let's go around the table. I'm Stephen Thompson with NPR Music. And while Glenn Weldon is on vacation, we've got two guests with us this week. First up from NPR's Code Switch team, our friend and frequent guest, Gene Demby. Hi, Gene. How's it going? What's good? And also new to the show this week, it's always an exciting moment. Yeah. Everyone knows I love it when we have a new person <laughs> in the fourth chair. With us this week is NPR's TV critic, Eric Deggins. Hi, Eric. You guys somehow transported the fourth chair all the way to Florida. That's right. <laughs> this is amazing. That's right. Thank you so much. Pop I appreciate technology. that. That's right. Eric is missing out on Historic Studio 44, but we are missing out <laughs> on Florida. That's, which, that's uh, true. <laughs> missing out on 90 degree weathers and, and gators. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> You're missing a lot. <laughs> Lots of gators. Uh, so it's been a year and a half since the premiere of the first season of Master of None, co-created by Aziz Ansari and Alan Yang. The show stars Ansari as a young actor named Dev, who in the first season worked on his dating and professional lives while navigating relationships with his parents and his friends. The second season dropped last Friday as we taped this, and we wanted to take a look at it. This season opens with Dev in Italy studying pasta making after a hard breakup with his girlfriend, Rachel. We should find a clip there for where yeah. I wrote clip TBD. <laughs> or we could also, just make like a lot of time. I didn't go back to it. It's cool. It's cool. Yeah, well, it'll be the sound of pasta. <laughs> right, right. All right, cool. I don't understand. How come you don't like the way I make pasta? Huh? <laughs> What's wrong with that, man? That was really good. <laughs> Eric has a very good I was say, that's that's as, sorry invitation. That's as close as we're going to get. I was going to say, we may, we, we may have to leave Our that fifth in. Chair. <laughs> we may have to leave that sorry. in. So so we wanted to get together and talk about this second season. Now, the first person who came to me and was all excited about the second season was Gene. Yeah. Uh, so, Gene, I'm going to get to because I know how he feels already. <laughs> uh, Steven, I saw over the weekend while he was watching it. I know a little bit about how he feels. Uh, I don't know how Eric feels, but I know Eric has written about uh you know, many television shows. I'm <laughs> All gonna the other say. shows. How do you, you how do you like this one, Eric? I I really uh, love this second season, and one reason I really love this second season is because there's a sense that here's a guy um, who's making TV, who is slowly gaining greater ability to express himself in the medium, yeah. and we're getting to watch that. If you binge watch the first season and then you binge watch the second season, you can see how he's challenging himself. You know, everyone is, you know, his partner, Alan Yang, and also his co-star and co-producing partners. They're challenging themselves. They're trying new things. They're bringing in guest stars. They're telling different kinds of stories than they did the first season. 
and telling some of the same kinds of stories, but in a deeper way. I mean, it's just, we're sort of seeing the flowering of this talent. And I've interviewed Aziz a few times here and there. I've always felt that he was smarter than people realize because he plays sort of well-meaning doofus characters right, a lot of times. Right. But he is a smart guy. Yeah. And to see him inhabit this series, I was just, I was so impressed. Yeah. And, and I, I want to ask you specifically, because you are our TV critic, um, you hear so much on television now about people saying, my thing is really like, it's a 10-hour movie. It's an eight-hour movie. <laughs> he seems really devoted. It looks to my eye like he's really devoted to the idea of knowing how to make a good episode, a good series oh, yeah. of contained episodes. Would you agree? Yeah. Well, what's great about this new season is that there are some episodes which have continuing storylines and there are some which are standalone episodes like he's not letting anything hold him back so there's some episodes that seem to be homages to foreign films and there's some episodes that are clearly inspired by you know just life in new york and seeing people on the street and wondering you know what would happen Mm -hmm. if i could follow that person home and see Mm -hmm. what their life is like and then other episodes where he's taken two or three episodes to really tell an important story for his character dev and the people around him so i've always felt especially with streaming that we were in this world where there are no boundaries And originally, when we saw a lot of streaming shows, they were half hour if they were comedy, and they were an hour if they Mm -hmm. were drama. And they had they followed the rules of television, but they didn't need to. Mm -hmm. And here, you know, Aziz Ansari seems to be saying, you know what? I'm going to do that, and I'm going to tell the stories I need to tell, and the story will tell me whether it needs to be continuing, whether it needs to be one episode, whether the episode needs to be a half hour or an hour. Right. You know, whatever. Yeah. So, Gene, what was so, like, what got you so charged up about this season <laughs> that you came over and you were like, I want to talk to you about this once you've I seen it? I was so amped. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> one of the things uh, I wanted to echo a lot of what Eric said, but also there are two episodes of the season. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I know like, exactly what you're going to say. I know I, exactly which ones. I liked last season. I, I thought it was a good show. There are two episodes of the season that are among like the best episodes of TV that I think I've ever seen. Yeah. One is New York, mm-hmm. I Love You. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, the other one is Thanksgiving. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, and they, to Eric's point, they are sort of just like standalone episodes that don't really have um, anything to do with the sort of the overarching like Dev's search for love and right. Right. in New York, right? right. right. Um, New York, I Love You is basically three vignettes yeah. about three different people and the thing that's really like subversive and clever about that episode is that it starts off as if like you the point of view character in the, in the first vignette would seem to be Deb, Denise and Arnold right mm-hmm. are walking down the street and they pass this guy who's a doorman and the episode ends the whole vignette ends up being about the doorman and his <laughs> like a day in the life of this doorman uh, one of the doormen that the guy works with goes to a bodega and we see this white guy flirting with this black woman behind the counter it turns out that she's deaf. The episode sticks with her. The yep. deaf yeah. and goes uh, goes completely, completely silent, silent yeah. right? Yeah. And it's yeah. all in ASL and mm-hmm. subtitles. And in the third, these two young white women hop into a cab, and you think that's going to be about them, and right. it turns out to be about the cab oh, driver, who's yeah. this dude from Burundi, who like is like, and it's, it's these are such. There's so much about each of those stories that was like funny and really on point. And like there that is exactly what it is like to be sort of in your twenties in New York City in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. It's like all of my best memories of living in Brooklyn for the ten years I was there involve like these days in which you go out with like, these expectations of like, oh I'm gonna do this today and you end up in a completely different place with a bunch of random people <laughs> and having like the time of your life. Um someone tweeted the other day, I forget who it was, that this show seems like a Woody Allen and a lot of the episodes are, like Woody Allen movies. Oh, man. Full of people who Woody Allen would never put in his movies. <laughs> I was so <laughs> gonna say that. You know, yeah. that's exactly. It's yeah. a bunch of anti Woody Allen. Absolutely, a bunch of brown people in the service economy. Yeah. Right. It was just really. 
It's true. Like they like they had these full lives. We actually talked to Alan Yang on the Coastage podcast uh, this week. I um, mean, he was saying like you know he's like that was actually the thing. Like they wanted to like everyone is the star of the Netflix series of their own lives, right? Right, uh, right. Like, you could dig down in anyone's life, right, and find like a bunch of drama and comedy if you wanted to. And that's one of the things that I liked about it. That when I wrote about it, that I said was that. I think that one of the things that makes it so effective mm-hmm. is that one of the qualities of these like Netflix shows that are like deep into this person's life, usually dudes, but sometimes like it's also on girls. It's true. Even with ones that people really like, like even with like Louie, right? Mm-hmm. There is something that is formally solipsistic about being like, we're going to follow this one person in New York as if they're the only person in New York. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I, it kind of releases you from some of those formal flaws when you give up out of 10 episodes, you give up an entire episode really saying we are cognizant. It's part of our worldview that Dev is surrounded by people who are just as interesting as he Absolutely, is. Absolutely, yeah. And that means that when you make other ones, like the first date one where he's doing a bunch of like dates with different women, the show has an understanding that those women are also interesting. What, yeah. do you want to, what are you saying, Thompson? Yeah, I, what I have written down here are the words radical empathy. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. This is a show that is so invested in the perspectives of other people. Mm-hmm. Uh, you mentioned Louie. It's, it's such an interesting example. Remember the episode of Louie called uh, And So Did the Fat Lady? Mm-hmm. Where, it turns mm-hmm. a, where it turns a chunk of an episode over to this woman who tells her story. Played mm-hmm. by the great Sarah Baker. Who is so great and who I look for now in everything. Yep. And that episode was lauded, I think rightfully so. But this show does that all the time. Mm-hmm. And yeah. and I actually, I went back because when we talked about the first season of this show, I remember like kind of rushing through it and it didn't necessarily stick with me as much as it seemed to stick with other people. And so I went back and watched both seasons this weekend. Mm-hmm. And first of all, one of my thoughts, I mean, you had, I had the same reaction you did, Gene, of like, there are several episodes of the show that are among the best episodes of television I really think I've ever seen. That's right. But one thing that jumped out at me again and again and again, and this is, I think, a partial list. Parents of immigrants, mm-hmm. women getting harassed, old people, devout Muslims, an unfaithful married couple, the three people you mentioned in New York, I Love You, mm. Denise's family oh. in that Thanksgiving episode. And I love that mm. Denise character so Me incredibly much. Too. And I'm just delighted by her every time Me she's too. on screen. Yeah. But this is a show that is as much about those people. And it's so invested in their lives in such a loving and humane mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. empathetic way. Yeah, I agree. Eric, where are you on? Like, which of the episodes that stood out the most to you? Well, the ones that Gene mentioned, I mean, you got to take your hat off to those, and especially the Thanksgiving episode, because I got to tell you, I felt like I was watching my mom and her <laughs> Me sister. Too. Me <laughs> you too. Know? It was like, it was, it was so my cool. Aunt Cynthia yep. and my mother, you know, sitting around, though they would have been much cooler about uh, having a gay <laughs> child. <laughs> yes, right. but, um, and to see, again, to see Angela Bassett yes. be able to take that role and just go to town with it, Kim Whitley, you know, these yeah. are actresses who, other than Ryan Murphy, you know, Angela right. Bassett doesn't get a lot of great roles, you know? And so these are roles with depth. One of the things that's interesting to me is that sometimes when you're watching shows, and I hate to put it this way, but sometimes when you're watching shows about people of color written by white producers, you can tell they are scared to be culturally specific. Mm-hmm. They are frightened of saying the wrong thing or doing the wrong thing. 
what I find so amazing about this show is that they are so confident about the cultural landscapes that they are rendering. And it doesn't matter if it's, you know, telling the story about how Dev pretends to be a devout Muslim around his parents, Mm -hmm. you know, friends or relatives, or whether they're telling uh, this very African-American story about Denise coming out to her mother and aunt and grandmother, or they're telling, you know, a story that's just set you know, in contemporary New York with a multiplicity of people, they are so confident and they're so specific and they nail it so well that if you're from that culture and you see it, you're just like, man, that's my family or that's, you know, I know people like that. Yeah. And that is an amazing achievement. I think one important point to make when we're talking about these shows, Lena Waithe, who plays Denise, co-wrote that episode, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that Thanksgiving right. episode. Right. And I feel like these characters and these stories are given voice by people who have lived them. And again, I come back to the word generous again and again. It's clearly a decision has been made of like, tell your story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right, I agree. Right, right. Uh, one thing, I, you know, you asked me which episode. I, I do want to give props to the very first episode, oh, which is set in Italy. It's shot in black and white. It's directed by Aziz Ansari. And it tells the story of Dev moving to Italy, learning how to make pasta, and developing this group of Italian friends that will show up later in the series. And again, I, you know, they even make the joke in the episode, this is what we normally see middle-aged white women doing. Uh And we get to see Dev, you know, come there, learn the language, live among the people. He speaks Italian awfully well. You know, I'm like impressed at how well he can go, even though they make fun of the fact. I heard him tell Seth Meyers the other night that he's not fluent, but he's pretty good for an Indian guy. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I know. And, and, and then when he has a love interest that shows up, you know, she's a British woman, but she's also black. I mean, they're constantly subverting and surprising you with who they allow to do what I in the show. I love that character, and I was yeah. so pissed that we don't. I don't want to ruin anything for anyone who, doesn't, who hasn't Spoiler seen it. Spoiler yeah. Oh, man. When he lost his phone in that episode, I, no. I felt that. I was like, oh, oh bro, bro, you got to hunt her down. You yeah. have to hunt her and down. you know what that felt like to me? That felt like the Sopranos and Pine Barrens. Yes, it's yeah. right. <laughs> We're waiting for the Russian to come back. Yeah. escapes, and everybody's like, when is he coming back? Exactly. And he never yeah. comes back. And, and I, will sp- I will be the person who speaks up for what I think. My sense is the thing that people are the most mixed on is whether they like the story with the Italian woman who he becomes friends with, and then she shows up again later, and there's sort of a there's a push pull between the two of them because they're friends, but she has a boyfriend and then a fiance. And I I will be the one to speak up for that aspect, okay, but, sure. particularly for the second to last episode of the season. The idea of that episode is that they're kind of falling into this spell where it's very unclear whether anything can come of it, but yet they're very conscious of this kind of romantic tension between the two of them. It's not clear whether is it just because she's in New York and everything is different and it's not real life. And Mm -hmm. I think the reason it's an hour long is because it takes that kind of time to create the sense that this relationship is unavoidable, that it's kind of happening Mm -hmm. almost against the will of the people who are involved in Mm -hmm. it. And what I like about it is that the show to me is legitimately uncertain about that relationship, Uh, Mm -hmm. legitimately uncertain about whether it's a good idea Mm -hmm. and specifically very uncertain about whether she in particular is being fair to him because Mm -hmm. I think it's very good at getting to, he looks at this as a situation where if somebody is in a relationship, you don't get into it. Right. Mm-hmm. You, because A, it will end in tears and B, it's just not a stand up person thing to do. Mm-hmm. So he's 
genuinely has mixed feelings about it. And I think the way that they explore that is very sensitive in a lot of ways to the complexities of relationships that can't happen. Mm -hmm. Um, And when you get toward the end of that episode, there's a kind of an evening that they spend together that involves dancing and listening to music. And it captures to me so well this way in which you have big moments with people yep. that you don't know how to act on or mm-hmm. whether to act on. Mm-hmm. I found that actually very moving. Oh, I really I liked that part of the I thought episode. it was amazing. And like you said, you need that much time in an hour-long episode to really, like, they are focused in each of these episodes in making you feel what the characters are feeling. You know, these emotions are earned on these episodes. Right. Mm-hmm. I agree. They don't just tell you something and expect you to react to it. The end of the dating episode where he's riding in the cab at the end oh, by himself oh for like an interminable time, you know, and it's all about just making you feel what he's feeling. Yeah. They're so good at that. Well, it's interesting. You mentioned friendship and they have this wonderful friendship. This is a show that values friendship so much yeah. and is so careful to draw the friendships in his life as these incredibly powerful and precious forces. With Denise, with, with Denise, Arnold. With Arnold. The, the friendship between him and Arnold does, does something that I think is so clever and pretty subtle. They are friends, and I'm looking over at my pal Gene Demby. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Gene Demby and I... <laughs> Are friends who hug. Yes, absolutely. we hug every time we see each other. <laughs> we do. It's it's just a thing. We're friends who hug. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. And Arnold and Dev are friends I who imagine. hug. Yeah. And it's and it's important to them. Yeah. It's it's a part of their friendship. Yeah. And their interplay I found so incredibly sweet and and special. And the show clearly finds it special as well. The other note I, I really do want to make is uh, there are several episodes revolve around the fact that Dev becomes the host of a show called Clash <laughs> yes, of okay. the Cupcakes. <laughs> oh my gosh. And the point that I want to make is that Aziz Ansari hosting a show called Clash of the Cupcakes, <laughs> I would watch 50 hours oh my of God. DJ Sweet Treat. <laughs> oh. just, just the fake promos that they did. No. I was like, I want to see more of those. It has a uh, it has a fake website that you can uh, go to Clash of the Cupcakes uh, and when I saw just the first glimpse of what Clash of the Cupcakes was, I thought, boy, I don't know if it's Aziz Ansari or somebody else, but they watch a lot, lot of Food of- Network because <laughs> yes, this is yes, exactly what yeah. it would look like. And there was one person on Twitter who was like, "Now I want there to be a show Clash of the Cupcakes," and I was like, "There is. It's called Cupcake Wars." <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's exactly that ridiculous. But that's one of the things about the show that I think is really fascinating is that all those little asides are so well observed, right? Yes. Okay, so like Clash of the Cupcakes is, you know, it's a tertiary thing. Well, it's not tertiary, but it's like, it's not the main point of the season. But like all the details about like the way the show would look are right on point, right? Yeah. I was like, I, I was watching, I finally watched the last episode last night before we taped this. And I was like, is Raven Live a real show? Because it just seemed like <laughs> it should be. Show. Doesn't it seem like it should be? <laughs> yeah. And, and the, but the thing about like the show is that there are all these, like it's a show that's like capacious enough for like references to like these old Italian movies from the 40s. Yeah. But also like, you know, there's a That's So Raven joke in it, yep. right? There's a joke, there's all these jokes about like cross colors in, in the Thanksgiving episode about the way that Denise dressed, the way they both dressed in the yep. 90s. There are all these things that are like really specific and right. Yep. I, just, I just, that's one of my favorite things about the show. Can, yeah. can we talk a little bit about food? Food in this show. Oh man. Oh sure. Yeah. Because food is such an essential part of the stories they're telling. Mm-hmm. And it's not just the food and it's not just that Dev is hosting these crazy shows. It's the social part around food mm-hmm. and how friends get together and how lovers get together and mm-hmm. how dates come together around food. Yeah. That's something that really blew my mind, too, is, is the subtext of that running through 
almost every episode. Yeah. And it's a show about the universal forces that bring people together. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It really Mm -hmm. is. That's like a very good summing up of the show, (laughs) which sounds so corny and yet is so true. Well done, Thompson. Yeah, there was specifically the brothless ramen when they showed that. I was like, this has to happen this week. (laughs) I I wrote down the name of the restaurant just in case it actually exists. (laughs) I also wanted to to shout out just in the first episode, the conversation he has with Priya about whether or not, like whether they date people who are not Indian. Oh, um, yeah. Right. This is a, a, a theme that like has popped up a lot. It popped up in a Kumail Nanjiani lyrical profile, but also in a Get Out, right? In the, mm-hmm. the same with the box. Mm-hmm. That specific yeah. like anxiety about like whether or not you're being fetishized yeah. in, a, in a relationship, relationship. which yeah. is a very, I was just glad they gave voice to it because it is a very, like, neither of them had any answers, right? Like, well, yeah. what if they only dated two Indian people before them? Like, oh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're on their way to being a fetish, yeah. fetishist, but not quite there yet. Yeah. Like it was just a really, I thought, like a, a specific anxiety that folks yeah. have. Yeah. All right, uh, we are going to move on to our B topic. You know, although I think it's safe to say we could talk about the show for oh, a very God, long time. Yeah. Uh, I'm sure that a lot of you have seen it or have seen some of it. Come and find us on Facebook at facebook.com/pchh or tweet us at pchh and tell us what you think about it. When we come back, we are going to shift gears, and Eric and Stephen and I are going to talk about the Amy Schumer and. Goldie Hawn movie Snatched. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Hulu. With the largest streaming library full of your favorite reality TV shows, Hulu is the home for reality TV's biggest fans. Catch all the drama, all the tears, all the heartbreak, all the competition. Because Hulu has your reality TV. Start your free trial today. Learn more at Hulu.com. Hey, it's Guy Raz here, and I am excited to introduce you to my friend Mindy Thomas. She is the co-host of NPR's incredible new podcast for kids. It's called Wow in the World, and every week we'll take you and your kids on amazing adventures through the world of wonder and mystery and imagination. Subscribe to Wow in the World however you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Pop Culture Happy Hour. Goldie Hawn hasn't made a feature film since 2002, right up until last week's Snatched, co-starring Hawn and Amy Schumer as a mother and daughter who take a vacation to Ecuador only to find themselves kidnapped by bad guys they then have to run away from for about an hour of screen time before they can go back safely with a better relationship. And if any of that seems like a spoiler to you, you may be thinking about this movie in entirely the wrong way. It is not here to shock you (laughs) plot-wise. No. Directed by Jonathan Levine and written by Katie Dippold, who also worked on The Heat and last summer's Ghostbusters. The film also features Wanda Sykes, Joan Cusack, Ike Barinholtz, Chris Maloney, and others as people who either do or do not help our hapless heroines get back home. Uh, I will own up at the top of this segment. I laughed at this movie. I did. I giggled at this movie quite a bit. Um, but Eric... Is significantly more mature. You sound like you're confessing to some bad. Well, I might, know, I might be. substance abuse habit or something. I might be. Uh, Eric is more of a sophisticate than I am. I feel so. Please. I'm going to ask Eric, with all due caution. Yes. Uh, did you laugh at this movie at all? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. It's. I thought it was funny, but to me, in a weird way, that's the danger of some of these yeah. movies: is that they're entertaining. Right. Um. Well, we're going to talk about sort of the racial implications of it, right? right? You know, hard to get around um, the white lady scared of brown people <laughs> storyline. And the thing that always strikes me about these kind of movies is that the audience knows that all white people are not like the white people who appear in this movie, mm-hmm. but they don't necessarily know 
that all Colombians are not like the Colombians depicted in this movie or all the non-white people. Like, I really have a problem with movies and TV shows where especially characters of color are solely their ethnicity. Mm -hmm. You know, the black guy who's the government worker, you know, doesn't want to help anybody, doesn't want to extend himself and gets rude on the phone when you challenge him. Uh, Mm -hmm. The Colombian gangsters, you know, are murderous people. Right. And we should say, they, although they start off in Ecuador, they do go to Colombia. So they're both yeah, they Ecuadorian and, and Colombian folks. Anyway. Yeah, exactly. And so I do feel like every character suffers from that a little bit. You know, mm-hmm. they kind of are their stereotypes in a way. But in the Goldie Hawn and, of course, the Amy Schumer characters, they get to transcend their stereotypes. And these other characters don't. And that's what bothered me the most when I was watching it. Yeah, I hear you. How about you, Johnson? I, I completely hear what you're saying. And I, I think that uh, the, the mm-hmm. movie itself largely for me disappeared like a fine mist. Yeah. Uh, like, <laughs> yeah, I get that. Like, by the time I got home, I don't know. And I, and, I, I, and I completely hear you on how broadly drawn some of the kind of ethnic stereotypes. I guess the defense, I guess I would, I would give this very minor movie is that I feel like everybody is incredibly broadly drawn. Right. Everybody in it is a cartoon, right? Mm-hmm. And I appreciated the fact there is also Chris Maloney plays this sort of, I think of him as kind of Michael Douglas in Romancing the Stone, right? right? Mm-hmm. Um, kind of this swaggering American, I know the territory down here, I'll show you around, white dude, Indiana Jonesy, sure. romancing the stony kind of guy, who also turns out to be a complete idiot, right? right? And I appreciated that because if you're going to be taking shots at stereotypes, then it's good to spread it around, I guess. <laughs> But my problem with it, the more I thought about it, because I I really, I laughed at the movie. And for the most part, I came out thinking, like, I enjoyed it, right? Although I came out of it thinking, like, I got to think about the With reservations, absolutely. But the more I thought about it, the more I thought, I think where I come down is, like, posit a world that's not already racist. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, if you had a context where, you know, people who speak Spanish or people who are black or whatever are not already underrepresented in a lot of mainstream studio comedies, then you might be able to say, like, you know, they go to Ecuador and Colombia and they run into bad guys. So, of course, they're Ecuadorian and Colombian bad guys, right? You might be able to get away with that in some kind of fictional world in which you don't have all this context around it. But the problem is it's not the same thing to stereotype a white American dude as it is to stereotype a Colombian gangster, as Eric said. In the well, the thing that's, that's interesting to me about it is that, you know, we're talking about this on the heels of talking about Master of None, right? And what right. Master of None constantly does is take these people and put them in situations that you don't expect, people of color, mm-hmm. right? And I kept watching Snatch thinking to myself, you know, if they had just made that guy black, if they had just made Chris Maloney's character, if they'd have had a black actor playing it, right. if they had just changed the ethnicities of some of these people, if they had just allowed the white characters to really get to know the culture that they were suddenly thrust in, the way mm-hmm. Dev gets to know Italian culture and Italian people. Right. You know, it was just like, there's some things they could have done to, to amp up the movie to the point where we'd really be considering this like something interesting and something maybe groundbreaking. Right. But what, instead what they did, and I'm always wary of comics who claim to be taking pot shots as stereotypes, but what they're really doing is they're echoing them right. and they're refining them. Right. And and I think Amy Schumer does that a lot. Sometimes she subverts stereotypes, but sometimes she just echoes them. And it's always a challenge to sort through her work 
and figure out the places where you need to challenge what she does and figure out the places where it's worth supporting what she's trying to do. Yeah, I agree. I think a lot of our criticisms, and obviously there are major cultural criticisms here, but I think the creative criticisms we're making here are we're doing a lot of sitting here and saying, what if this movie were more imaginative? Yeah, I think you're right. And I I think that's kind of my overarching issue with it beyond what we've been talking about. It, It feels so knockabout and low stakes. And in a way, like, I really think there's room for kind of minor Mm-hmm. basic cable-y kind of comedies that are not massive budgets that, that right. still get released in theaters. It's coming out in summertime when there's so much action movie bloat. Yeah. I want there to be movies like this that are that are knockabout and silly and are just comedies, period. But I, at the same time, you can make a short, low-stakes mm-hmm. action comedy that still has notes of imagination to it. I agree. Yeah. And, I, you know, I saw this in a crowded theater in St. Petersburg, Florida, and you could tell that's exactly what the audience wanted. They just wanted a cool, accessible comedy that would make them laugh for 90 minutes that wasn't really trying to be much about anything other than them getting to see performers that they really liked and that they thought were funny do some funny stuff. Yeah. And I could tell, like, the audience started laughing before they any of the actors did anything that was even funny. Mm-hmm. I could tell they were just they were ready they to love it. these two yeah. these two people together. Yeah. And and that's the great power of this movie, I think. Yeah, I think that's right. And I have really loved this run of kind of Paul Feig yeah. executive produced. Mm-hmm. Katie Katie movies. Dippold sometimes involved. Um, start going all the way back to Bridesmaids and The Heat and Spy, which is a movie I really, really love. But as I started to compare it to a movie like Spy I think, first of all, Spy has more good jokes than this has. Mm -hmm. But you do, even in a really silly movie, even in a really silly movie, especially with somebody who is like Paul Feig or Katie Dippold, who actually is trying to make movies that have an element of heart to them, you don't only have a series of gags, right? You have a series of gags and you can evaluate the gags as funny or not funny. And I feel like the gags in the movie are funny taken separately from everything else. But you can't take it separately from everything else. And what was doesn't wind up happening is like it's true in the heat and it's true in spy that there are characters of whom I'm I'm very fond in those movies. Mm-hmm. Not just the main characters, but like the friend in spy who works in the oh, yeah. basement and is kind of coaching <laughs> her through everything. I'm so fond of those people and I wasn't fond of these characters or any of the other char- the supporting characters in it in the same way. And it's like it can be a bunch of gags. And it, you still want some kind of, I don't know, affection for story or something like that. Yeah. Uh, if you saw Snatched, come and find us at facebook.com slash PCHH or tweet us at PCHH and tell us what you think. If you did not see Snatched, I would be interested to hear what you want from your light summer comedies because I think we all agree that we want them, yeah. just maybe not this particular one in a few different ways. Well, when we come back, it's going to be time for our favorite segment, What is Making Us Happy This Week. We'll be back with Gene Demby as well as me and Stephen and Eric. So come right back. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Hulu. With the largest streaming library full of your favorite reality TV shows, Hulu is the home for reality TV's biggest fans. Catch all the drama, all the tears, all the heartbreak, all the competition. Because Hulu has your reality TV. Start your free trial today. Learn more at Hulu.com. 
Welcome back to Pop Culture Happy Hour. Before we get to our favorite segment, What is Making Us Happy This Week, I did want to remind you that we still have tickets available for our live show in L.A. at Largo at the Coronet, and that is on June 15th. We will be joined by Shireen Marisol Maraji of NPR's Code Switch team. There are still tickets for that show. Again, it's uh, June 15th at Largo at the Coronet, and you can get those tickets at nprpresents.org. And that brings us to our favorite segment of this week and every week, What is Making Us Happy This Week. Stephen Thompson, what is making you happy this week, buddy? Well, I wasn't on the show last week, so I didn't get a chance to uh, to plug a delightful conversation I got to have with our pal, Sam Sanders. Oh. If you are listening to NPR One, and if you are not listening to NPR One, download NPR One, mm-hmm. Sam Sanders has been piloting this new talk show he sure that he's planning to launch eventually. Linda, you've been on it. I just got to be on it for the first time with a uh, New York Times uh, reporter named Katie Rogers, who's delightful. It was a little harrowing to occasionally have to talk about actual news events. <laughs> Um, But we talked about everything from the recent French election to the fire Festival, which is uh, one of the uh, most comedy-packed news stories Uh, you will find in the last uh, few months. Uh, Katie Rogers has this whole theory about how Brad Pitt and Miley Cyrus are the same person. Uh, If you want to hear more about that. You never see him in photos again. Uh, That is a very good point you just made, Eric. (laughs) Um, (laughs) They're calling it right now. They're calling it uh, Sam's New Thing. You can find it on NPR One. The episode that I got to be on aired... uh, uh, May 5th. It's so fun. I can't wait to see what Sam does with the show. Um, all right. Yeah. yeah, I think we all feel that way. Thank you very much, Stephen Thompson. Gene Demby, what is making you happy this week? Um, the, the thing that's made me happy, actually, is Kamel Najiani. Yeah. <clears throat> Kamel Najiani is a big fan of... You guys are fans of him? He's been yeah. on the podcast before. Sort of a friend of the show, yeah. Yeah. Uh, he's hilarious. There's a great profile of him in The New Yorker from a week and a half ago by Andrew Morant um, about his life. There's so much stuff I did not quite understand about his life. He didn't... He never shook the hand of a woman who was not a relative of his until he was in college uh, uh-huh. because he came from a very devout Muslim family. And so the profile was sort of about him navigating... The fact that he's a secular Muslim, which is a thing we don't see a lot of outside of Master of None. I was just uh, going to say, except in Master of um, In popular culture. Um, and just his life, like, sort of acclimated to America, but also, like, in comedy. I thought it was really, really thoughtful. His relationship with his wife is very sweet. Um, they became co-conspirators. They're making a movie soon, which it's is so about good. a lot of stuff. You've seen it? Good. Oh, yeah. Yep. Oh, I'm jealous. Love it. <laughs> anyway, I'm excited for the movie. But the profile was actually just a really, like, smart, well-observed profile of a really interesting cat. So... Thank you very much, Gene Demby. Eric Deggins, what is making you happy this week? Well, I wouldn't say this is making me happy, but I'm going to talk about this new Netflix series that's going to drop on the 19th called uh, The Keepers. And I don't know if this is anything you've heard about, but it's a true crime series, and it would be tempting to call it sort of their new version of Making a Murderer. But basically, it opens with these older ladies. They're in their 60s, I would guess. And we see that they're researching uh, the disappearance of a nun who used to teach at the high school that they attended in the late 1960s. She was killed. And her murderer was never found. And they're trying to unearth the story of who might have killed her. And I don't want to give away too much, but I will say that it involves the discovery of a pedophile ring inside the high school run by one of the priests and allegations that get even deeper, even crazier, even more dysfunctional than you can imagine. And it all involves people who are older 
because this all happened in in a school near Baltimore in the late 1960s and early 70s. So we have a show that is centered on older people, real life people, trying to sort through this thing that sort of bulldozed through the lives of so many people that it touched, all centered on this question of who actually killed this nun and was it connected to all these other awful things. And I just, I couldn't stop watching it. Uh, It is really compelling, but really disturbing. It's called The Keepers? The Keepers. The Keepers. Highly bingeable, true crime. Always worth a watch. Thank you very much, Eric Deggins. Uh, Making Me Happy this week, also on Netflix, considerably lighter in feel than that, (laughs) is the uh, new, and this is going to be controversial with some of my correspondents on Twitter because I already know that they're not happy. I very much like uh, Anne with an E, which is the new adaptation on Netflix Mm -hmm. of Anne of Green Gables. Mm -hmm. The backstory I will give is I am also a great fan of not only the book, but the mid-80s Canadian version of this story, which is also very, very beloved and has run on PBS and such. Um, Not streaming anywhere, which is a crime. The new one is considerably darker which can be kind of, you know, I am the first person to say I don't need a dark, gritty version of everything. But um, (laughs) when you have a story like Anne of Green Gables that begins with people wanting to adopt an orphan, uh, and they originally intend for it to be a boy, so that he can work for them, you are already in a fairly dark world. So to me, it's more honest. You know, Anne comes to them, and this is true in the book, and it's true in the Canadian adaptation, and it's true in this one. Anne comes to them from having been kind of handed around from family to family with people who expect her to to basically take care of kids and be a little bit of like a hired hand. Mm -hmm. And she's had a very difficult life, and she would naturally in real life come to them as a somewhat traumatized person. And I think there's a little more honesty in this version about the fact that this would be a traumatized kid. And she wouldn't just be charming and, and beautiful. She would be hurt by the way that she's lived. And I really like the casting. I really like the way that they approached it. To me, more than one adaptation of the same story can sit side by side on your shelf of things that you love. I still love the old one. I still love the book. But I really like this and I think it's worth checking out. Um, Despite the fact that I know that a lot of the people who are faithful to the book and faithful to the the Megan Follows uh, version, which I also love, are a little hurt by R. it. R.I.P. to your mentions. Disappointed in it. Yes. <laughs> R.I.P. my mentions to the many librarians who love the show. <laughs> Sorry, ladies. Oh, man. All right. And that is what is making me happy this week. And that brings us to the end of our show. You can follow all of us on Twitter. You can follow me at NPRMonkeyC. You can follow Stephen at I Dislike Stephen. You can follow Gene at GD215. That's G-E-E-D-E-E-215. You can follow Eric at Deggins. That's D-E-G-G-A-N-S. You can follow our producer, Jessica Reedy, at Jessica underscore Reedy. And our producer emeritus and music director, Mike Katzif at Mike Katzif, K-A-T-Z-I-F. Mike's band, Hello, Come In, provides our in and out music, which you are tapping your foot to right now. So thanks to all of you guys for being here. Thank Thank you. you. Thank you. And thanks to all of you for listening, and we will see you right back here next week.